something that just like, hits me between the eyes in almost every interview you do with a market woman or a taxi driver is this is purely functional drop the morality drop all this preachiness this is how i get my day done Welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This time around, we are excited to welcome Diana Chigas and Cheyenne Chutbecki Church to our podcast. I had the privilege to meet Diana a few years ago in Boston. Over lunch, we realized that we share the interest in approaching corruption through the lens of social norms. Since then, the topic has only gotten more popular, I would say. So it is great to finally have her and Cheyenne on the podcast and give us a deep dive into their work on social norms of corruption. To find out more about it, you can check out our show notes. But now, without further ado, here are Matthew, Diana and Cheyenne. Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson and... In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Cheyenne Church and Diana Chigas, who are both professors of practice at Tufts University's Fletcher School and serve as co-directors of the Corruption, Justice, and Legitimacy Program at the Henry Lear Institute, which is housed at the Fletcher School. So uh, Cheyenne, Diana, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matthew. Delighted to be here. Yep. Thank you. Let me start out by asking each of you to say a little bit about how you came to the topic of corruption and anti-corruption. I gather that like many people in this field, this isn't where you started, but your work in other areas eventually led you to an interest in, and now I think it's fair to say a focus on issues related to corruption, governance, and so forth. So what was your path? What got you into this topic? I'll start, Matthew, and it, and it actually harks back to some of my first work in the peacebuilding field. I started some of my first work in peacebuilding in Northern Ireland, working with the Protestant paramilitaries and on a project that was to move them from violence to politics. And as I worked more and more with, with this particular Protestant paramilitary, I became more and more informed of how they financed their activities. And so much of that was around crime and they used corruption in order to facilitate crime. Things like smuggling cigarettes and for sales, things like brothels. A few years later, I started doing more work with uh, uh, in Kosovo right after the dissolution of, of Kosovo in terms of the conflict and watched and also saw the role that the KLA used crime and corruption in order to facilitate many of their activities. And that was my initial introduction to becoming really interested in, well, how does crime and corruption interface with conflict? That put it on my radar. Then I started doing far more work in Sub-Saharan Africa and started to be very frustrated by what I saw as a real technocratic response to issues that of corruption that I saw were actually driving conflict. And so that's kind of the arc for me. Diana? So I come from the peacebuilding field as well. And um, our collaboration with Cheyenne started while I was actually um, not at Fletcher, not at Tufts. I was running a program called Reflecting on Peace Practice at an NGO called CDA Collaborative Learning Projects, looking at effectiveness of peacebuilding. And one of the things in the peacebuilding field that we had noticed, um, a couple of things. One is that as you think about, there were a lot of really effective projects that weren't really contributing to the larger peace. And part of the reason was that the analysis that people were doing around 
what the drivers of conflict were, was incomplete, very linear, very sort of focused on listy kinds of things. Um, so I started getting very involved in looking at systems approaches to conflict analysis. And so the two things that got brought us together, one is that corruption came up constantly. I too work with Cheyenne in Kosovo. Uh, we saw corruption coming up as a driver of conflict. I spent a lot of um, many years working in the former Soviet Union and the Caucasus um, and then in Central Africa. And it came up again and again and again. And the peace building field was doing pretty much nothing about it uh, other than recognizing it. Um, and as Cheyenne said, when she joined, really thinking about some of the technocratic responses, we started to think that the, some of the systems analysis would be helpful in generating a more nuanced and dynamic understanding of both the drivers of conflict and corruption's relationship to conflict, but also about what drives corruption as well. So we we ended up coming together over, over that, and I became more and more interested in corruption, too, as a phenomenon uh, through that. So I certainly want to talk more about the links between corruption, conflict, and peace building, but Diana, you used a term that I know comes up a lot in your work that I wanted to spend a little bit of time unpacking for our listeners who might not be as familiar with you. So, so you talked about systems analysis. That phrase, of course, means different things in different contexts. People who are inside certain academic fields might understand it one way, whereas people who are outside are not as much. Because I know that concept is such a central theme in the work that you have done together and that, that's done through your center. But because that term can mean, again, different things to different people in different contexts, I wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe explain or unpack for our listeners what you mean by systems analysis in this context. And I'll start, Cheyenne, please sort of pipe in as well. I think one of the things that we were noticing, at both in conflict and around corruption, is uh, a couple of things. One is that we tend to come in with an answer and work backwards. And so I, I used to get a lot of, there's lack of this or lack of that, or there aren't any anti-corruption structures in place. There's no oversight. Um, and so people would come in sort of leading with the solution, not necessarily the diagnosis. The other piece that as we noticed with how analysis was being done is it's very, you know, you'd have your factors as a list and you felt like you could sort of take it apart by pieces and then address all the little pieces and it would add up. And we were seeing that that's not happening. So the systems piece, and we use a particular tool in systems, but there are many ways of looking at systems, really looks at um, corruption as a dynamic process. We were looking at the kinds of analyses that were being done were both being led by solutions, but also being kind of led by a list of things that you said, all right, if we address this, and it will somehow all magically add up. And what we knew from the conflict areas, it doesn't, that a lot of these factors interact with each other and that there's feedback, there's unintended consequences to things that we needed to understand a bit how all of these pieces interacted with each other to be able to then figure out how to do better and more effective interventions. So the systems really looks at the feedback loops, looks at the dynamics, looks at how things are changing, and also looks at how corrupt phenomena and pe you know, how people and how corruption responds to efforts to deal with it. And so what we were finding is, so yes, this project was very effective, but then the same phenomenon would crop up somewhere else, um, a little bit like kind of whack-a-mole, um, because the system would then adapt to whatever interventions there were. So we, you really couldn't just focus on your own little thing. You really needed to get a better sense of the whole. And so that's kind of our, our overarching approach to systems. We use a particular 
tool, which is causal loop diagramming, which offers a visualization of the dynamics of the corruption. But there, as you said, there are lots of other ways of looking at things systemically as well. And I was wondering if either or both or one of you could maybe make that a little bit more concrete with one or two examples, because everything you said, Diana, makes perfect sense. Yeah. To me, it sounds almost like intuitive common sense. And of course, these are big and complicated systems and all the different parts relate to each other. Um, but I would imagine both other researchers and also practitioner types who are not as familiar with the work that you're, you're doing might not be completely clear on exactly how this caches out, how this kind of analysis would look different from a more conventional analysis. And in part, because I know that you guys have done work on particular projects in particular countries, it would be maybe helpful both for me and our listeners if you could give one or two sort of simple examples about in practice how this mode of analysis would work differently and how it might lead to policy recommendations or other kinds of interventions that would be different from the ones that would be indicated by the more conventional sort of analysis, which is, for lack of a better term, your, your foil here. I mean, so one example would be around the police and judiciary in Uganda, um, where we had done a systems map. And you know, there were a number of interventions, anti-corruption interventions, oversight committees. There was a lot of training. They were put. They put in new regulations, training of new recruits, all of this. And what we were finding is that corruption was not coming down. And as we looked at it, we discovered that people were under a tremendous amount of pressure to serve their families and to take bribes. And even if some, if a family member, if their family member came in and they didn't want to do something and uh, take their bribe or demand a bribe from them, they were required to hand it off to somebody else. And so there was a whole informal set of rules there um, that basically undermined all the official pieces. And it's kind of what brought us to social norms as well. And the idea is that that then undermined the effectiveness because that fed back, the new recruits had no idea some of these official rules even existed. Um, they actually thought some of these unofficial rules were the way things were supposed to be done. And so we discovered unless you started dealing with some of those factors that undermined the effectiveness, it would be very difficult to do effective anti-corruption. So you'd have to match the sort of traditional kinds of interventions with something that dealt with some of the social pressure. So. For me, what causal loop mapping does is it offers us a, a way of seeing the relationships between all the things that we know are happening that drive or enable corruption. And rather than having a list, it shows what is feeding into what. Um, and what practically that helps me do as a practitioner, it helps me identify an entry point. Where can I come in? Where's my competencies, my tools, my, my political capital come in to start to work on the system? Then what it lets me do is it lets me preemptively scenario out what my theory of change might do to the system. Oh, so if we come in on this entry point, here's how this might ripple through the existing corrupt system positively and negatively. So we can start to um, scenario plan, is this a better intervention or is that a better intervention? Um, and I think that's really, really helpful because it can also let us see where things that might start out looking good may actually end up feeding a negative dynamic in the context. So to give you a concrete example, we did an, an analysis in Lumumbashi, Congo within the judiciary. So just law enforcement and justice, not the corrections. And we saw this such a negative system of corruption. Basically, everybody's corrupt in every way possible, except we 
kept stumbling across people who are identified as the exception to the rule. There's a judge there. There's a police officer there. There's a court clerk. If you go to him, he'll make sure you get in without having to pay when they can. So we're looking at this map, this understanding of how corruption is working in law enforcement and the judiciary. And we've got these outlier, what we call, ended up calling islands of integrity. And we were thinking, well, rather than try and fix a problem, what if we support good work that's already doing, already happening. So for two years, we worked in Lumbashi building a kind of a strength in numbers idea. We brought all those people together. We built the, and it was a judge, it was court clerks, it was police officers, it was lawyers inside and outside the government. And what was distinct about it is these weren't citizens advocating for these people to follow the rules and, and, and honor integrity. These were people in the system, the abusers of power, who were choosing not to abuse on their own despite all the pressure. We brought them together to say, how are you able to do this? Can you help each other? And we really focused on what is typically not focused on, the relationships between these people. Can we create strength in numbers, moral support, exchange of ideas, so that they can do what they're already doing a bit more? And other people who are maybe on the fence who are watching them, I'm thinking, oh, I could never, I could never hold the line on, on integrity or follow the rules, could start to sway towards them. At the end of the two years, we had an independent evaluation done, um, and they were shocked at what people were saying about this network. It had become a phrase, so just we Kaleta Haki, meaning I am Kaleta Haki. Kaleta Haki was the Swahili word for this grouping, and it meant I support integrity. And we had a whole series of examples individualized examples of where they had done more to say no to corruption. Did it shift the system? Probably not to be totally accurate, but it built such momentum. And then unfortunately our donor changed directions in terms of they moved away from all funding within corruption. And so we ended up having to, to stop what was signaling to have some real potential. I think the other piece that we, we've also done, it's coming back to looking at that whole system. And in Uganda, when we'd done this map in a participatory way with a number of different players, both from the donors, from NGOs, civil society, a number of people working in different sectors of corruption. So it helped them develop a shared analysis um, and helped them figure out some ways of collaborating with each other. But just from a visual perspective, we just asked people, where are you working? And you know, they put little yellow stickies on the map and stood back and took a look at it and said, gee, you know, nobody's working on a couple of things that we all thought were really key drivers of this system. We may have assumed that somebody else was or whatever, but there are clear gaps that are affecting our effectiveness as a whole anti-corruption kind of field or community. So the visualization has also been really helpful for that as well. So this is all, this is all really fascinating and, and resonates very much with me and what little I know about these topics. If you don't mind, I want to push on what seems like it might seem like a superficial, at least, tension in what, you, what you've said. And this might be an unfair characterization of your work, but I want to bring it to the surface because I'd really like to get your perspective on this. So on the one hand, there's this idea that one of the reasons you need to think about these things in terms of systems, of complex interdependent systems with lots of moving parts, is the idea that a limited intervention here or there isn't going to make that much of a difference because the system is so resilient that they're going to it's going to adapt and work around your change. Diana, this was a theme that you were emphasizing in your earlier remarks, which at least taken one way suggests that kind of 
modest targeted interventions that are meant to make corruption a bit harder or to help people resist it in this way or that way, ultimately are not going to be that effective because it, it doesn't change the overall system and all the different pieces fitting together. But then, Chan, you were describing what seems like a really useful, helpful intervention where you identified a handful of people who were behaving with integrity and got them in touch with each other and got them communicating with each other. And you seem pretty optimistic that it, at least until the donor pulled the plug on the funding, this wasn't like totally reorienting the system, right? This was a handful of people, but th that modest targeted intervention, building morale and providing mutual support made things a little bit better. And you can see where I'm going on this. If I, if I, put, if I take that, but then put it in the context of what Diana was saying earlier, the cynic might say, yeah, but the system will just adapt, right? There are always going to be some outliers who don't play ball with the corrupt system, but ultimately the system will keep on rolling. I feel like this must be something that you guys have thought about. I'm sure that what seems like a surface tension, at least in your view, isn't. But I'd love each of you to say a little bit about that, about how because your analysis shows how these are interdependent, interlocking systems where what you call technocratic targeted interventions are unlikely to make a difference, how you reconcile that with some of the positive successes that Cheyenne, you in particular, were just describing, where you did have what seems like a modest targeted intervention that you feel pretty good about. Yep, absolutely. So I have two different thoughts. Um, first is that no individual project is, is going to ever fundamentally shift a system, be it in corruption or in conflict. It's putting the two units of analysis are, are fundamentally different. My sense is that what you're trying to do with an individual project is create a shift that ripples through the system that then offers new opportunities in terms of better, more potentially impactful entry points. Um, so we shouldn't be thinking in terms of a project and changing the entire system from success to, sorry, from failure to success, but did a project shift the system in a way that opened us up a new, better, more impactful opportunity? So going back to the DRC example, we started with about 15 people in this, this island of integrity. By the end of two years, we had 40 people, all holding official positions, coming together actively, actively engaging. So much so that sitting judges were putting on t-shirts that said in French, say no to corruption, and going to the courthouse steps and handing out brochures that they had written about what citizens could or could not expect in terms of um, judicial processes. Their idea, their initiative, we just provided support bringing them together. Oh, you wanna do that? Okay, we can, we can enable that for you. And I tell that story because whilst I don't think we shifted the system, I think over time, given the support the, the tiny bit of protection possibly being linked to an international organization provided, who knows where they could have gone in terms of connecting with others, mobilizing different groupings and constituencies, and then we could have gotten some more fundamental shifts in the system. But note, I'm still not going to, it's over, it's all clean and it's all, it's all perfect. Diana? Yeah, and I think I think it's an important point not to equate systemic with scale, because it's not sort of the whole big system, but it's really thinking about have you, are you doing your project with an awareness and integrating an awareness of what's happening outside of your 
project. Um, so what might be some unintended consequences? So there's a there's some research in Ghana about sort of customs officials, which I'm sure many of your listeners all have probably read, where they were looking at, you know, everybody says, well, salaries, low salaries sort of lead people to demand bribes. Well, in this case, they sort of increased the salaries and the bribes increased. And I don't know because I don't think they did the research, but one hypothesis that we had is that um, if they increase the bribes, because as, as these public officials sort of were had more salaries, more was being demanded of them from their families. So they had more pressure to actually get more money. So if you start thinking systemically, you might have thought through what are some of the ripple effects and effects that will have outside of the narrow confines of your project. And can you take that into account and think about it? either in the design or as you're sort of doing more adaptive management, kind of say, okay, this is going to be, we're going to have to now figure out how to deal with this type of thing because we hadn't anticipated that would happen, but it's a consequence of where we are with our intervention. Can I circle back to Anna to your interesting observation earlier about social norms or family pressures as a driver of corruption? Again, I know that you two and the two of you and your program have worked on social norms as a component of, but also as a standalone research agenda, and it, it, re, part of your research agenda uh, as a component of the, the systems analysis, but also as a part of standalone research agenda. So people who study corruption are familiar with the importance of social norms and informal norms as a driver of corruption. I think that the point that you made before about trying to address these kinds of expectations uh, that were applied to this set of uh, police officers that you were talking about seems to make total sense. What I wanted to ask you about, what I wanted to follow up on was what kinds of interventions can be effective there? Oftentimes, of course, uh, donor agencies or international organizations or civil society organizations are engaging with policymakers, uh, which may explain why they naturally gravitate towards things like changing rules uh, or changing institutions. I don't think that these people are ignorant of the fact that social norms and things outside of laws and regulations matter a lot. They're less, though, directly susceptible to interventions through the state or through the bureaucracy. So I think one of the things that people are trying to understand, and here's where I'd like to invite you to comment, are what kinds of interventions can help address these social norm problems? So I don't know, Diana, if you want to continue uh, on the specific example you raised before, or if one or both of you would like to speak to this more generally, but like, what kinds of interventions should we be thinking about if we want to change norms and expectations about people, you know, getting a lot of extra money on the side and using it to not only support their families, but maybe their extended families or villages or whatever the relevant unit might be? Well, how about I'll kick off, Diana, and then if you go into the, the, the Uganda example. So I think the first thing is that we have to get out of this idea that social norms are this simple, just a bunch of pressure. And we have to understand the various pieces that come together to collectively make a norm. And it's a set of perceptions. It's what we believe other people who matter to us on this issue are doing. It's what we believe they think we should do. And really importantly, what these other people that matter to us on this particular issue, what they will do if I do what they expect me to do. In other words, how will they reward me? Equally, how will they punish me if I don't do what they expect me to do? So in this police officer example, if I don't demand a bribe to register a citizen complaint, 
What will my fellow officers do in response to that? Which is typically around gossiping, wondering what's up with her? Why isn't she behaving that way? What game is she playing? And so it really surfaces around, they start to distrust me is the negative sanction. I bring that up because the question is, how do we change these norms? Depends what's happening. Norms aren't a thing. They're a collection of things. So is it about the, the, the strength or the impact of the negative sanction, the consequences so bad? Then we have to look at that. Is it that there's some pl- what's called pluralistic ignorance, that individual attitudes are actually quite different than the perceptions of what people think? In which case, then that's the strategy you might want to go. It's a wedge point that you can that you can take advantage of. I think my point is we have to sit and give the diagnosis of what is happening in these norms a little more attention so that then we can set up effective anti-corruption strategies. And it sounds pretty easy, but it actually it gets pretty tricky because social norms are different than attitudes. They're also different than what are called conventions, which are just common practices that happen and you do it because it meets your needs, but no one's giving you any, any social sanction and pressure. And what we've seen quite a bit in terms of anti-corruption programs that do start to think about social norms is that insufficient attention has been given to actually breaking out what are the components in this particular instance, meaning what do people Who's the group that I care about? What do I think they do? What do I think they think I should do? How strong is the sanction? And therefore people are using pretty blunt um, responses where what all the evidence from other sectors say on anti-corruption is that you gotta have a scalpel. This has to be pretty nuanced and specific to that particular group in order to understand it. And that's in anything from a communication strategy to a dialogue session, to a picking a role model. And it can go terribly wrong. If you pick the wrong role model, but who you're trying to get to act as a demonstrator that a different way of behavior is possible, you can actually reinforce the behavior you were trying, trying to change because people go, oh, that's not part of my group. I don't behave like that. And they get more entrenched in the way they were originally behaving, the negative behavior that you're trying to change. So we've got to think about social norms change programming, particularly in corruption, like as a scalpel, as the devil's in the detail, not as, oh, yeah, a couple of quick strategies that we add on to our already good work. Diana? And I think the point there, which I am, which is implicit in what you just said, is that a lot of the sort of basic kinds of interventions are similar to things that we do in other areas for attitude change, for behavior change, I mean, dialogue, looking at sort of coming up with agreements for collective action, looking at media campaigns, publicity, the role models, that type of thing. And so as Cheyenne said, I think the devil is in the detail. It's the, what do you talk about in the dialogue? So in a a dialogue, if you're wanting people to say, well, people's individual attitudes about sort of a particular corrupt practice that they have in, in the police, they really, none of these police really want to be doing this and want to be demanding bribes. They just feel pressure to do this. And, but they think everybody else sort of goes along with it and thinks that you should do it. Um, your dialogue would try to get people to start understanding that all these other people in their peer group also feel the same way that they do. And so there's an opportunity there to sort of say, okay, as a group, we might be able to shift things. So the media campaigns, um, instead of, and I remember in, in Uganda, there were all these posters, you know, corruption is evil, which was really targeted to people's values and attitudes. 
but actually, you know, actually may have under negative effects because it may make people think, oh, gee, there's more corruption than we thought. So we'll get completely hopeless about dealing with it. But the message might be there are more people who are actually resisting corruption than you thought. I mean, I think part of Kuleta Haki's success was they put the T-shirts on. They had a number of people appearing in a lot of different public places. And people started to see, gee, there's some people that we really respect that we never thought would be able to do this. They can do this. So it opens some space for us to do that and say that there's maybe some change happening in the system. Uh, so as Cheyenne said, the devil is really in the details. It's not some totally new kind of intervention, but um, just nuancing some of the kinds of interventions that we already know how to do. So I guess continuing with that theme of the devil being in the details, how do you do the diagnosis? So this is something that I, I'm struggling with a little bit because I think listening to the two of you, you've made some very compelling and I think almost certainly correct points about the fact that you do need to understand in a detailed and nuanced way the particular context to be able to predict the effect, effect of a given intervention. And you've both given examples of kinds of interventions that can go well or poorly uh, in different contexts. So just to restate some of what I've heard, raising salaries. So in some contexts, there's evidence that raising an official salary may have a salutary effect, especially if the reason people are taking bribes is that there's an implicit understanding that they're underpaid. So the government budget uh, doesn't look like it's spending that much on customs or police or whatever. And in that context, raising the salaries might be helpful. In other contexts, though, raising salaries might either make no difference or even be counterproductive. If, for example, it means people uh, then have face even higher demands or another explanation I've heard for the experimental results in Ghana were that now the police officers are facing an even higher risk of losing their job. The job itself is more valuable because it comes with a higher salary attached. And so if they're going to risk that job, they're going to demand an even higher bribe to compensate them for the risk that they're taking. Another example, Diana, that you just gave are mass media campaigns condemning corruption or saying resist corruption. So there are some examples that people have pointed to of how these kinds of campaigns have been really helpful in shifting social norms. I know people like to talk a lot about Hong Kong, for example, and the experience of its independent anti-corruption commission starting in the late 70s through the 1980s, about how important it was that that commission made public education and not just investigation and enforcement a big part of its work. But there are also examples, Diane, exactly as you said, where these kinds of campaigns have um, potentially backfired either by creating the impression that corruption is actually more widespread, making people think, oh, gosh, like everyone's engaged in corruption. Or I've read some research that suggests in certain contexts it can be experienced as um, condescending or alienating, especially it seems to be coming from not only foreign groups, but elite groups within the society as being excessively moralistic. So this is a long, long run up to my question, which is that like, how can you tell, Cheyenne, you said something like it may seem really easy, but, and I got to say, it doesn't seem really easy to me at all. Taking this from a very abstract kind of academic question to practically, since you guys have worked on these sorts of projects or worked in teams that have worked in these projects, what are the diagnostic exercises that you can run to help you figure out things like, will a mass media campaign in this context be helpful or counterproductive? Will a focus on official salaries remediate the problem or exacerbate the problem? Like, What are the diagnostic tools that from your experience and from your expertise uh, you think are most helpful and appropriate for doing the 
kind of nuanced devil in the details kind of work that you both have emphasized is so important? Yeah. So the public, the international public health field are the folks uh, and gender-based violence are the folks that have taken this the furthest. And the way that they typically do the diagnosis is through large scale survey work. Um, and whilst we think that that's tremendous and offers great detail and nuance, we worry that it's not appropriate and accessible for your average anti-corruption organization, a TI chapter, uh, a local uh, advocacy against corruption type type CBO. So what we've been trying to do is identify more light touch, but still credible ways to identify and diagnose specifically the social norms. Typically, we start with this, with this bigger picture analysis, which we call systems analysis, where we're trying to understand where do the social norms appear amongst all the other things that are also driving a particular behavior, maybe a lack of law, maybe incompetence, because not every corrupt behavior is driven by social norm. And even if we think of corrupt behaviors, they're always a transaction. So one actor, in this case, let's say use the police officer again, their behavior is driven by the norm, but a citizen's behavior is not. They're, it's transactional and they have no choice and they're going to, they're going to participate. So we're trying to under, we try to understand where the social norm fits. And then to go deeper into the social norm, we've had some pretty good success on the citizen side using vignettes, which is a qualitative approach to when you can use it in an individual interview or within a focus group where you provide a very clear, short, practical example of a corrupt behavior. And then working with people, you unpack, well, what would other people think of this? Would they approve? Would they not approve? How would they act? And, and you can pull together and figure out the specificities of those different components. You can even get into the gendered element of the norms because a lot of social norms around corruption are gendered. So for instance, the sanction on a woman might be far greater than the sanction for breaching the norm for doing a different behavior on a man. And those, of course, need to then get represented in your anti-corruption program if you're trying to get all, all your populations to, to shift. So we've had some very good luck with using vignettes in focus groups with citizens. We've not had that same luck using vignettes in focus groups with officials. They don't want to go into this even, and we've tried it in different ways, officials that know each other, officials that work together, officials that don't know each other, different interlocutors who have more trust and are part of the grouping facilitate the conversation rather than us. Um, and so with, with officials, be it civil servants, local authorities, we go to one-on-one -on -one interviews and unpack the vignette in that way. We've also, as Diana mentioned, done some participatory and it is very feasible, but it requires a really nimble facilitator and a very aware and on point note taker to be at, to be grabbing all the details of what people are saying. A couple things that I'd add there is that I think as social norms, there's some social norms that are really directly sort of direct you to give, do a behavior. You know, you should, you need to ask for a bribe when you stop people at traffic lights, uh, for example. Uh, but some of the ones are really indirect, you know, helping your family can apply in a lot of different situations, some of which are really good. I mean, you want people to be supporting uh, lots of kids in Uganda would not be going to school if that weren't for that kind of a social norm. But in other situations, it has a negative application. And so I think the other piece is to sort of actually 
pull apart a little bit those social norms and say, okay, what does it mean to help your family in this situation? Um, and just really get really situational in a lot of those interviews, because then you can get a sense of how they might play out with the interventions that you might do. And I think the only other thing I'd say is that a lot of, and it's true in conflict as well as in corruption, um, our analyses tend not to include all the interventions that have happened. And you can learn a lot by looking at what is what kinds of things have been done and how have those rippled through the system. And so that's another way of starting to look at, okay, would the media campaign or this kind of a media campaign work here and not here by just looking at the peculiarities and looking at other things that people have done before and what kinds of responses or reactions have they gotten to these kinds of things before? And so what does that tell us about what's going on now with some of these norms? Given that it seems like from what you just said, you use a lot of focus group conversations and one-on-one interviews to try to identify and characterize the operative social norms. Are you worried at all about the representativeness of the people that you're talking to? I mean, given that societies are large and complicated and people don't necessarily think about things in the same way and the kinds of folks who might be uh, talking to researchers from North America might not necessarily be broadly represented. So, so you clearly thought about all these problems uh, right, or challenges, maybe would be a better term to use. Can you say a little bit about how you think about the challenges of generalizing from or extrapolating from what I assume must be a relatively limited number of focus groups and one-on-one interviews to characterizing maybe not the norms, but the distribution of norms, since they're likely to be a multiplicity in any given context in the society where you want to do the intervention? Yeah, we're, we're typically not doing national level analysis because they're so, it's so complicated to get anything that's really practical um, and an entry point at, at a national level at the size of Congo, for instance. It's not typically the unit of analysis that we're working at. We're often working on a sector in an area. So the judiciary in Lumumbashi, the police in Northern Uganda, but your point on diversity is really, really important. And so typically what we do is, is if we're going to do a participatory analysis, having diversity in the room is critical to really get that represented. If we're doing focus groups, we're ensuring we're, we're having different groupings that represent whoever your demographic that matters is, but it might be, you know, youth, elderly, urban, rural, whatever the cuts are. And in terms of size to do the, to do our systems and our social norms, we were looking at between 110 and 150 original interviews when we were testing the methodology. Um, now that we've shifted into more participatory methods, um, they are smaller, but we, and when we do have smaller um, data set, what we typically do is we bring back partial analysis back to diverse groups. And we say, this is what we've heard. We need you to cross check us. And, then, and we'll do that multiple times um, as a way of trying to, again, balance this feasible? Can the average organization do it, but still credible? I mean, I think the other piece is to just look for exceptions to the rule quite explicitly. So so to avoid overgeneralizing from something that may be overgeneralizable. So we'll ask people, we will ask people as part of that. So when is this not the case? Are there situations in which you don't see this just so we get a sense of, all right, how generalizable norms often have exceptions to in, in in the health sector, I think it was a, I think it was Uganda, Cheyenne, it may be, um, but there was a, there were a whole bunch of norms around 
bribes for services for, from doctors, except for you couldn't ask somebody who was old, um, an elderly person or pregnant woman who was coming in. That was off limits. So you could start also nuancing your understanding of the norm by understand, understanding that. But I think also being open as you're doing the intervention to coming back and revisiting the analysis and saying, okay, what have I now learned from some of this that will refine the analysis? And have I, um, so that we, you can not get stuck in an overgeneralization that may not be true. Speaking of learning and possibly of refining, I wanted to ask about a slightly different, but I think related issue. And that has to do with how you measure effectiveness or impact of your interventions. And just to frame the question a little bit, it's inspired, Cheyenne, by something you noted before, uh, just in terms of about a project that seemed to be working pretty well ending, um, when the donors were you know, going in a different direction. Oftentimes, I feel like in this area, the kinds of outcomes that we really care about are the sorts of things that would really only occur in the relatively longer term, the medium to longer term, changing social norms and expectations and practices, seeing even the impact in actual behavior from maybe simpler, more technocratic things like training are the kinds of things where we might not expect tangible differences to crop up for some period of time. And even if they do have an impact, it may be very difficult to isolate the effect of a particular intervention, precisely because, as you have emphasized, we're dealing with very complicated systems with many moving parts. At the same time, donors and funders and the governments in the countries where these projects take place oftentimes seem to be like they're operating on a shorter time frame. Like there's a one or two year project. How do you figure out which of your interventions or projects that you're supporting are having the kinds of impact that you want? How, given this environment, can you do the kind of learning by doing that seems like it's inevitably an important part of any attempt to improve these complicated interdependent systems? So again, I'm sure this is a, a challenge that you all have thought about given the nature of the work that you're doing. Um, but I'm sure many of our listeners also struggle with this kind of question in different ways. So what's, how do you do your own monitoring and evaluation and measurement of effectiveness? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And, and I think it's a classic question for any of these more complex type sectors like peace building, governance, anti-corruption. I think some of the traditional evaluative approaches of, of, of laying out in three years, this is what's going to be achieved, and then having a locked-in M&E framework that's going to assess that, I think it's just pretty well understood now that, that that doesn't work, and you have to be thinking of these things from an adaptive management perspective. So an adaptive management is gathering information in real time and then altering your specifics of your theory of change accordingly. So A, we think you have to come in with a real adaptive management approach, which involves actually creating some monitoring mechanisms to gather data that then you will really engage with, not just in a single loop, like a tactical way, but in a double loop, like did this change our assumptions and should we change our, our theory of change as a, as a result? And more and more bilateral donors are becoming okay with greater change and flexibility within programming, which is good. Concretely, we've tried something called Most Significant Change, which is a um, Rick Davies developed it years ago, and it's a form of monitoring that steps away from preset indicators and sits with, with whomever your target population is and says, well, what has changed that matters to you? And then they often have a group collective discussion 
to say, well, which of those changes that we've experienced has been most significant in our lives? The power of MSC is that it moves the decision of what matters away from the interveners to those who are living in those environments. It's not perfect. It's not sort of rigorous in terms of being able to track things over time and look for trends necessarily. Sometimes trends come up, but not always. But it's one of the techniques we've used. We've also been looking at and thinking about outcome harvesting, another um, technique in evaluation that has come from a more systems understanding. Um, and if in effect, outcome harvesting is looking at talking to both the people involved in the programming, both as implementers and as participants, and saying, what changes have you seen? And going out and cross-checking them. Obviously, there's some pushback in terms of bias and what do you miss in that? And, that, and that's accurate, but the benefit is rather than trying to preset explicit changes, you go out and say, okay, what did actually happen? And I think there's a number of other evaluative approaches that don't get much attention in the international community, but are absolutely within the evaluation scholarship that could offer more potential things like goal-free evaluation. Um, and just think we need to create a little more time and attention upfront um, as we're developing programs to really think carefully about how can we generate more data that's useful for programming? And I think there's more opportunity. I don't think there's a magic bullet out there and it's always going to be insufficient, but I think we can do better within what we're doing. I think the other thing, just to focus um, on the social norms piece that we've found, and Cheyenne has done a lot of this research, so you should pipe in. But as we were looking through evaluations and how people are doing the evaluations, what we found is that they everybody said that they were evaluating social norms change, and they were really evaluating either attitude change or behavior change. And so part of the evaluation part actually goes to the design and the clarity of the theory of change and the assumptions that are being made. And then the focus of some of the evaluative techniques on the pieces of social norms, you know, are we focused on people's chain, you know, they believe different things about corruption, they don't think this is right, or they, or, you know, they've started to behave differently. Um, but often, some of them don't go into why and haven't understood, you know, has, has the rules started to change, or have their perceptions started to change. So I think the, the focus piece is also something that would be at least a first step. I mean, it's a difficult question, particularly, as you're thinking, I think a lot of these social norms do change over a very long time. So you have to kind of have interim ways of understanding, am I at least sufficiently sure that I'm on a good track to continue. But I'll just say, Matthew, earlier you said many people in the anti-corruption community understand social norms and, and they are including that to some degree. We're actually finding um, and, and are starting to get a little bit concerned that the phrase is becoming popular, but without any of the sort of constructs that go beyond it. So we're seeing and hearing it a lot more, but are we actually seeing that pulled into a different form of original analysis? Are we seeing it pulled into the unique tailoring in the anti-corruption programs? And we're starting to get concerned that mm, this is becoming more of a, of a phrase use than an actual integrated shift in the way that the work is being done. I mean, it, it, with real implications, and I, I did a lot of training as a peace builder, and so looking at even if you're measuring attitude change, um, and so if instead of the social norms, because again, with the donors, you do your evaluation at the end of your three years, and then you don't go back to it 
often you don't know, and I saw that repeatedly in peace building is that people had tremendous attitude change. And then all the various other constraints that are driven by social norms will operate to really constrain their area for changing their behavior on a sustainable basis. Uh, so in that sense, the social norms are really a break and our, our methods, both the timing of when evaluations happen, but also the focus of the evaluations don't help us capture some of that as well. And I think we'd need to, to move in that direction too. Terrific. Well, we're almost out of time, which I regret because there are so many other issues I would have loved to, to ask you about. But let me just ask one final question and give each of you an opportunity to respond to it. So circling back to the beginning of our conversation, both of you got into this area through your work on peace building and conflict. You've been working in this area, and by this area, I mean basically anti-corruption, integrity, governance, et cetera, for, for quite a period of time now, both as scholars and also as people who have worked on practical projects. I'm interested in how your own views or understandings have changed over the course of your time studying and working in this field, whether there are things that you used to believe that you don't believe anymore, where you've changed your mind on something or where uh, the facts on the ground or what you learned from research didn't meet your expectations. Or maybe if you can't find something where you felt like you, you definitely shifted, something that was genuinely surprising to you coming to this topic that you would not have necessarily expected but that you discovered through a combination of, of your study and your, and your practical work. So, um, and let me, whichever one of you wants to take that first, but I'd be very interested, I'm sure our listeners would as well, and what, what do you think you've really learned from the time, at, personally, as, as practitioners and scholars from your work in this area? I'll go first, and I'll, and I'll, really, I'll really hinge off that personally part that you raised, Matthew. I think when I lived and worked in Northern Ireland and I worked with some of the active combatants and what I, what I learned at the end of that time personally on peace building was that if I had been born there, I would have been, I would have been an active combatant on one side, whichever side I'd been born on. And I just became really clear on like drop the judgment because if you had been raised here, I, I know exactly what I would have been doing and it wouldn't have been peace building. And so similarly with corruption, something that just like, hits me between the eyes in almost every interview you do with a market woman or a taxi driver is this is purely functional. Drop the morality, drop all this preachiness. This is how I get my day done. And so the similar lesson was really driven home for me of this is not a bad Apple thing. This is an understand how this system, how this environment works, which isn't like a great revelation. I'm quite sure, but I just, when you read some of the literature out there, it does smack of a type of judgment that I just think, you know, we're just blessed to get to be born where we're born and not faced with these challenges. And if I was a market woman in Liberia, I know exactly how I'd be behaving. And it wouldn't be alignment with Western, Western notions of right and wrong. Yeah. And you stole that one from me too, because that's... I mean Again, it shouldn't have been surprising at one level, but it is, I think, the how we saw it over and over and over again. Um, and I've sort of come to believe that some of the, although sort of good civic education and a number of these things, I think are really helpful over time, that this is really something that's functional. And I learned in the peace building field, you have to have empathy with everybody you're working with. And I think that's coming at it from a non-judgmental perspective is uh, really helpful. The other two things that I think I, when we started, I think our first case study was in DRC. And 
it was amazing how many different terms and nuances to corruption that we could see. And so we tend to sort of talk about corruption, but I've sort of become personally thinking that it's not sort of over helpful to talk about corruption. It's really helpful to talk about specific types and specific situations, specific things from a practical perspective. And again, that's not rocket science, but I think my experience in starting with DRC, but also in Uganda and our experience in Central African Republic has really reinforced that and how different it is in different countries comes back to sort of why salaries raised in DRC might work, but not in Ghana. Um, so th- that those would be what sort of two of the big one. And then and the third one would be actually social norms. I don't think we didn't go into all the corruption work thinking that we were going to be doing social norms. Um, it really came out of how important we saw that was um, beginning with I mean, beginning with DRC, but especially in Uganda, um, and sort of it's led to the our focus on social norms because we really saw how much it's there and how helpful it can be for us to then think about how do you sustain some of the behavior change that we um, that we want to do. So those would be my three personal personal learnings so far. If I hark back to when I was just working in peace building, I think I very much learned the level of sophistication of the actors who are benefiting from grand corruption, from altering the whole systems. And what I'm thinking about here is these things that we might call successes that are actually fakes, like anti-corruption courts. And we'd say, oh, great, they've set up an anti-corruption court. But actually, the anti-corruption court is just another tool that the people in power can use to punish those who may be not behaving the way they want them to behave or maybe becoming too powerful in opposition. And so, so one thing I've really learned is that the layers of analysis you need to do to understand, did something that on the surface might seem like a real success, oh, there's political will to stand up a court, where actually, no, this is either giving giving a nod to somebody in the international community so that they can access MCC funds, for instance, or this is the way of it's been twisted somehow. So it just continues to perpetuate the exact system that we think the anti-corruption court is meant to stop, but it's not. And I think that's just been, that's been just time and time again, fascinating to see the level of sophistication of how all of this operates. Terrific. Well, thank you both of you so much uh, for sharing your time and insights with me and with our listeners. Uh, this has been another episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast, and I want to extend my thanks again to today's guests, Cheyenne Church and Diana Chigas, who co-direct the Fletcher School's Corruption, Justice, and Legitimacy Program at the Henry Lehrer Institute. So Diana, Cheyenne, thank you very much. Really great to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Matthew. That's it. Another episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. We really hope you enjoyed the show. And if you like what we do, you can help us by telling your friends about us via social media or in person. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at KickbackGAP. Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast, is a collaboration between the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. Until next time.